our dietary guidelines um, and our nutrient composition data should reflect not only what we're eating as a society, but what we can sustainably produce off our land. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Italians and French call it the fifth quarter, Americans talk about organs and variety meats, and Brits about innards and offal. Joining me to talk about eating nose to tail, its many values, joys, and why it really matters to us, to animals, and to the environment, are Kate Wingett and Grant Hilliard, two wonderfully knowledgeable people with deep knowledge and understanding of the animal value chain and how it currently does, and perhaps does not, work for human health, animal well-being, and the environment. Welcome, Kate and Grant. It's so good to meet you. And, and, and I think you may have both met some years ago on a panel about sustainable supply chains or something like that at the University of Sydney. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Was that, um, yeah, I was trying to think when that was. That must have been about five years ago, Kate. Was that yes, right? Yes, yeah. Were you representing, who were you representing then? That yourself as a researcher at the, from the university? Was there also the woman from the RSPCA on that panel, the chicken grower as well? No, that was with uh, another academic from the university who's looking into pain relief, Sabrina Lomax, for the sheep. Oh, yes, that's right. Good. Welcome. <laughs> Master Reconnect. It's such a privilege to speak with you both in conversation together. Thank you. And fascinating to learn more about this incredible, nutrient-rich, delicious, but often wasted space, if you like, that is awful or relearning our grandmother's cooking wisdom, to put it more gently, perhaps. Before we dig in a little bit about Kate and Grant, Kate is a veterinarian who has 19 years' experience as a private practitioner in both Australia and the United Kingdom. She's a Senior Veterinary Policy Officer in Animal Biosecurity in New South Wales, an area where she has worked for over five years, and she is currently completing her PhD on the role of the Australian sheep meat system in achieving food and nutrition security with a focus on monitoring production and consumption of products from the value chain. Grant is many things, a former filmmaker and wine expert, I heard recently on one of your podcasts, Grant, uh, who with partner Laura Dalrymple is the co-author of the wonderful book, The Ethical Omnivore, A Practical Guide and 60 Nose-to-Tail Recipes for Sustainable Meat Eating. That was released in September last year. With Laura, Grant also owns and runs the very special Feather and Bone Butchery in Sydney, and Grant and Laura actively champion regenerative agriculture and whole-of-animal consumption through their butchery, writing, and other contributions such as joining us today. So thank you and welcome again. Food waste is a huge issue, and it's a lens the great debates around meat and food waste seem to barely touch upon. Yes. Globally, one-third of all food produced for human consumption 
is lost or wasted. If it were a country, it would rank number three behind China and the USA for greenhouse gas emissions alone. We know food security is a huge concern, and so too, increasingly, the idea of nutrition security, the ability for populations to access sufficient nutrients and micronutrients sustainably. And increasingly, as people are moving more, uh, and as and increasingly, as people are moving more towards more plant-based diets or to become vegans or vegetarians, there can sometimes be some perverse health consequences that travel with that, such as anemia. It's such a huge topic, animal production and consumption, food loss and waste of precious animal lives, nutrients and products, nose to tail. So where to begin? <laughs> um, awful to those who aren't experts in the field, can sound a bit intimidating, which I suppose is part of the problem, isn't it? I think for many of us, when we head to the supermarket or butcher, we're geared to think of common cuts of meat. So Grant and Kate, to help me and listeners get our heads around what what offer we could try to buy and cook more, uh, can, you perhaps set, can you perhaps suggest two or three types of offer that you most love or would recommend listeners give a go when they next head to the butcher or supermarket? Grant? Uh well, heart, I think, is a really easy one to sort of, for most people to, who who are leery of offal to sort of deal with, um, because it essentially it's a muscle. It it has a lot of the properties that they're sort of familiar with texturally, and I think the issue with offal largely is is a textural one, and um, uh, especially for children. Uh, texture is the sort of one of the key components of the way they sort of understand the world, and they're less focused on flavour than they are on texture. I find, and so we, for instance, sell an awful lot of uh, beef mince, which has twenty percent offal through it, um, and of course, nobody knows that it's got that amount of offal through it. Um, I mean, it's marketed that way; it's quite clear when the person buys it. But um, I think a lot of the people who buy it. Um, are very pleased to be able to hide the offal in the mince. So that <laughs> that has a lot of heart through it, but that's mainly because it's a drier meat or drier organ than than say liver. If we we do put liver through it as well, but um, just because it's so much uh, wetter, it doesn't keep as well if it's um, for, for storage. But we, we've found we did that as a sort of an experiment first in response to one particular customer's um, uh, request around it. And it's we just can't keep up with the demand for that now. So that's that I find really interesting, and it's it's because people are, are getting a, a flavour hit, um, which they appreciate without realising they're appreciating that. And I think for the most part, the people buying it don't tell their families what's in it. Fascinating, mm. uh, Kate. Uh, I will probably no doubt talk about liver later later down the track. Is there one or two other types of offal that you'd like to perhaps just flag at the outset? Yeah, and probably similar along to what Grant's saying, um, diaphragm um, is another cut um, that is, it may or may not be considered part of the carcass and certainly in cattle um, it, it's considered awful. Um, and again, you mean middle middle skirt when you say yeah? Diaphragm? So it's a it's a um, it's a muscle um, along the tongue, um, and so probably focusing on those um, cuts of offal that are more recognisable to people as animal source food. We can't keep up with that. That's hanger steak, you know, and it's, uh, it's you only get one per body, so it it gets snapped up extremely quickly. I don't see it as awful, though, even though it has a sort of a, it's like a muscle with a, a, 
enhanced richer flavor because of its proximity to to the rest of the gut i think um but it again like heart it sort of behaves like a muscle what well, is a muscle mm, fascinating what about sheep's brains uh, are, are we eating more or less of those yeah we don't get much of it it's it's the, it's a it's a processing issue largely um and having been to cara abattoir where they where they the, the room where they do that it's it's um it's like a somewhat Dickensian machine that is like a rotating, uh, how would you describe it? It's foot operated. It's a mechanical device that's foot operated and the, the head lands in this sort of bowl and then a sort of a cleaver comes down and splits the head in two. But unless they've got enough um, lambs being, well, this is how they explained it to me. Unless they have enough lambs being processed on that day, it's not worth one person being down in that particular room to do the uh, the brain processing. The only ones we get reliably are from Ningen Abattoir, where we get goat uh, goat brains every time we get the goats from them. There are much more, for reasons I, I don't quite understand, that Abattoir is much more careful with the offer. Looking now at how supply chains currently work or don't, let's talk broadly about how well we're we're doing eating nose to tail from where you sit and work in what's obviously a very layered and complex industry. Kate, putting you in the hot seat here, uh, would you like to lead us off to help paint the picture? Can you tell us about the Australian sheep meat system? What does it look like in broad brushstrokes, perhaps in terms of what we currently produce, what we eat here and what we export? And where and how does Offal feature in all of that? Sure. And I guess for the Australian sheep meat value chain, we've sort of got two lines running. We've got the wool-producing animals and then we've got our, our lamb, our meat-dedicated animals. And so the wool line produces a lot of older animals, um, which is um, Australia's, you know, up there as one of the leading um, wool producers globally, um, one of the leading exporters of both lamb and mutton, um, which is sheep um, sheep meat from uh, animals over the age of, well, one to one and a half now with the change in the definition of, um, of what is an Australian lamb. Um, and obviously those meats have got quite different um, textures, tastes and the way that you cook and prepare them and culturally um, there's a different demand for them as well. So what we see in Australia is the vast majority of the mutton from our wool-producing sheep is exported. Mm. Mutton is uh, more nutrient-dense than lamb. Um, with all meat, um, as the animal ages, the micronutrients like our vitamins and minerals increase. Um, and at the same time, our toxins increase as well. So we've got things like lead, our heavy metals and cadmium and those sorts of things in our offal also increasing um, in our older animals. And so about just over half of the lamb meat that we produce, so the carcass meat in Australia gets exported um, and the remainder is eaten domestically. And um, it's it varies from year to year, but you're looking at 80 to 90% of mutton meat is exported in Australia. And uh, that's a lot of nutrients for our country to be losing each year as well. Um, if we think of it back to our soil um, and our water, we're exporting um, soil um, nutrients and water um, in all those carcasses. So they're things that we have to be mindful of um, when we're looking at the sustainability of the industry. Um, in terms of offal, um, we don't keep track of how much we actually produce in Australia. There is data on how much is exported, 
So it's a bit more challenging space to understand where that's going. What we do know is that Australians consume very little offal. It does vary. Just recently, we started to um, publish again apparent consumptions by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which is fantastic. And it, it's it's less than a gram a day per person um, in Australia of consumption of offal. So, you know, we're looking at very low values here of less than half a kilo a year. And that's all animals. It's not just sheep. It's across all species. Um, so, again, the value for the offal is in the export markets, predominantly for the human consumption. Gosh. So, Kate, I, I really enjoyed one of your recent papers that you shared with me that was published in 2018 that looks at pre-consumer loss in Australian sheep meat value chains using a planetary health framework. So many fascinating insights in that. But one of them was that you said in 2013, your paper says that some 25 kilotons of edible offal was put to other uses or losses in Australia, equivalent to 6% of domestic production. I did a very crude figure, which and came up with it that's something like one in 16 animals wasted. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, and I, I guess when we there's a number of factors that are involved there. Um, offal, um, we've got liver and lung are our filter organs, um, so they're more likely to be diseased. So we will get downgrades due to disease. Um, some of those diseases, diseases are preventable or we can at least reduce the prevalence if producers are aware um and you know because some of these conditions you once the animal's infected even if they get over the infection the organ needs to be disposed of it can't go into the food chain um so that's that's one aspect of it is that we've got disease um downgrades and um as i said those older animals um there's um accumulation of heavy metals which for our own safety the government very you know does a very good job of um, regulating what is safe to come into the food chain um, from those from that perspective so we've got heavy metal contamination we've got disease downgrades but then we've also got market drivers um, and it's an area that's a little bit gray and we don't have a lot of data on which is where those um, where that offal's ending up. Um, sometimes it's passed as fit for human consumption, but unfortunately it doesn't end up in human consumption food chains. It ends up as pet food because rightly for the abattoirs who are the people getting paid for the offal, that's the most economically profitable and there'd be very few industries out there that, that would be so charitable as to, um, yeah, reduce their profit margins Um yeah, and, and take a lesser market um, economically um, and they're doing the right thing um, for their their businesses. So it's a it's a complex space. There's a lot of factors at work there. Yeah, so even though it's called edible offal, it includes what could be diseased edible offal. Oh, you just touched on pet food, but can you just provide a bit of an overview of where sheep meat offal goes? A lot of it gets exported. Is most of it going to pet food or for human consumption overseas or is it going into other uh, feed sources or food sources for other animals. Can you tell us about that sort of split? Yeah, there's um, unfortunately, Anthea, there's a, a lack of data published around where where our offal all ends up. Um, the offal reports that we have in Australia, um, the Commonwealth um, put out very regularly, which is fantastic on exported. It's an aggregated um, account, so it's all offal for all species. So we. We don't know um, which bits are going where for that account. Yeah, it's very challenging to know um, exactly 
where that offer is ending up. And that's one thing that we're, we're looking into further um, of how we could mm-hmm. hopefully help the sheep industry and human nutrition with understanding better where it ends up and why. So, so some has to be wasted or used for non-human consumption, but some is some that could be eaten is definitely wasted. To you, what does that sort of wasted production mean in terms of vulnerable rangelands and environmental sustainability? Yeah, and if, I guess if we're looking um, holistically at, at, at farming and it's not just at the, the dollars at the gate and not many farmers would just be looking at the dollars at the gate either, um, we're, you know, we've got to consider the environment and also the ultimate impact of that product on human consumption and society. So, Kay, can you tell me about the lamb nutrient distribution profile of of offal within within the overall animal? Yeah, we made a model lamb and we looked at the nutrient distribution across the lamb and absolutely the offal, and it's mainly due to the liver, contains more vitamin A, more folate and more B12 than the rest of the animal altogether and relatively significantly more iron. So every time you throw away a liver, you're throwing away the vast majority of some of the key micronutrients. I mean, the World Health Organization monitors iron levels in people globally because of the impact, the significant impact it has on human health across the world um, and the cost of, yeah, of, of anemia, particularly in women and children. Um, so there's, there's massive impacts there every time you lose a liver um, in particular. And so understanding that more is important. That's fascinating. And that's the liver of a sheep. Would it be, as a vet, I don't know, is this a fair question, would you imagine it'd be a a similar nutrient profile picture for the livers of other animals like pigs and chickens and cattle? Yeah, the the general, um, yeah, the the general nutrient distributions would be similar um, in terms that they've got high um, B vitamins and high iron and high vitamin A. Interestingly, Australian sheep have got um, incredibly high vitamin A compared to sheep around the world, even comparative systems like in New Zealand, we've got about doubles the amount of vitamin A in an Australian sheep liver. Um, I think more work needs to be done on that to understand why that is um, or, and, and, and how representative those samples are that that information is based on uh, for the population of Australian sheep. Uh, can you take a guess at that, Kate? Why that might? Um, uh, the what's your so? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a few factors that it could that could contribute to that. Um, it could be that we do have high levels. Um, uh, we often inject our sheep with vitamin A in drought years. Um, we also have older sheep. Um, as I said, um, New Zealand has mainly a prime lamb industry, and we've got a, a, a wool industry. So those two factors together. And also the way that we collect the data, um, it's it's often based in, and this is globally, um, nutrient testing is very expensive and nutrient composition testing. So it's often based on 10 samples. Um, so you may have just lucked in and got the sheep that had a vitamin A injection a week before it left the farm and, and that's skewing the samples. Mm. Talk about data a bit uh, down the track further. It's, it's, it's so interesting. Kate, um, what does the current... Re- retail scenario look like for the average consumer looking to purchase sheep offal, say in the supermarket where the majority of Australians, uh, more than three quarters, I understand, purchase their meat. If, if, I, if I walked into the average supermarket, could I fa- find edible human offal easily or where would I find it? In what aisle? 
<laughs> you would be able to, which is good news. Um, certainly our big two supermarkets um, do stock offal. The main ones that they're stocking are liver and kidney and heart, and a big, a big three for sheep, and you'll often see chicken livers as well um, in the supermarket there. Um, it varies. Um, I, I do hunt around supermarkets and, and take photographs of their shelves just to see where things are at, um, which is probably quite funny for other people. <laughs> but, it's yes, it, it often will be in, say, the lamb section, but I have seen it at times um, more skewed towards the pet meat section as well, sort of that, that segue between the, yeah, um, the human consumption meat and the pet meat. Mm. The heart and the liver and the kidneys are the easiest to harvest at the abattoir. Um, as Grant said, they'll often need extra staff just for a particular type of offal. Um, and so those three are pretty um, easy for the abattoir guys to get, which is good because they're also the ones that are giving us our bang for buck with our, our nutrient composition as well there. I haven't seen lamb's brain, lamb's tongue, sweetbreads um, in the big supermarkets of late, um, but they're just the ones I've been to, which is a pretty small number, I would say. Local butchers, you will often find that that's a selling point, that they will have a range of offal available if not on the shelf something that you can order which is yeah good news but it can be challenging to find those harder to harvest cuts thanks kate grant any quick comments or observations uh with regard to what kate's just spoken about yeah well i think sort of one of the abattoirs generate a lot of their their economic viability is based on the side contracts they have for all sorts of different products it's the actual kill i don't think keeps them in the kill costs don't keep them going um, it's what they can sort of trade after after the event that that is the the secret to or the key to their economic viability. So uh, things like intestines, you know, although we buy the whole animal, there is no way that we would get intestines from the abattoir. Part of it is a is is a food authority sort of concern around uh, contamination between the intestines and and raw meat, say the carcass meat. But also those products are already destined for whatever markets the the abattoir has already sort of set up around that. I think uh, also other you know feet and the hides, obviously, or the the fleeces in the case of case of sheep, and those they fluctuate really dramatically how much they get paid for those as well, uh, how much farmers get paid for those as well. I mean, it used to be that when there were lots of abattoirs that were more localized, and basically it was a swap, they would. You know, swap the offal and the hide for the for killing the animal. And if you weren't going to if you weren't going to kill on farm uh, yourself, that's that was the sort of the deal. Um, but now we've we've got very few abattoirs effectively operating now, and and those that are have been forced for good reason to to upgrade their facilities. So a lot of the small country abattoirs have closed in the last ten years. There's been an attempt to get say Oberon reopened, but that's stalled at this stage. And so distances are much greater now between. For, for people processing, where it used to be a much more sort of, you know, by necessity, a much more localised sort of activity, much like, you know, grain milling would have been done within every town. Uh, it's the whole idea that you're going to transport, especially live animals, vast distances is is relatively new and, you know, a great cost, animal welfare cost, of course, but that's sort of a separate concern. I was interested in, in what Kate was saying about the the buildup of heavy metal contamination in older animals, which of course makes perfect sense and and sort of mirrors what happens in peak predator relationships in the ocean with with you know sort of sharks and 
tuna and large animals that that accumulate things like mercury and, and various things. What I'm interested in is at you said that the government has a sort of a policy regarding those older livers from older animals, which they what they automatically say if it's over three or four years old that that it can't be used. Is that what you were saying? Okay. Yeah, there's a whole matrix depending on where you graze your animals, where they've spent their life and their age and their, mm-hmm. their species, whether they're cattle or sheep, um, and it's based on cadmium and it will, depending on yeah, where you fall on that grid, will depend on um, the market that your um, liver and kidney can enter into. And New Zealand do a similar thing, um, but they're a little bit more blanket in that they've just got a set age that they say, yeah, the offal can't go in for human consumption. That's really interesting. I mean, I think we devalue older animals generally in Australia and, you know, yearling beef is the is the standard here, which is um, certainly lower in what we're discussing today, certainly lower in nutrient density than, than an older animal and, and not coincidentally and relatedly in terms of depth of flavour. And, you know, it, an animal that's been through two winters will have a much greater depth of flavour than, than an animal that hasn't. And also, from our point of view, in terms of dry ageing, it's very hard to dry age a yearling bit. It, it's a, well, this would be a, a great thing to study, Kate, because it's something about, I feel it's something about the actual physical structure of the muscle structure, but it's also related to the interaction of the of fat and the muscle fibre. It, it just matures in a very different way. And so, and basically the Australian market is, is all yielding beef, like 14, 15 month old animals is the standard really veal at 10 months and and beef at 15 it's they're marketed as distinctly different products when they're virtually the same this whole thing around more fine-grained data it's 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 such a fascinating question and if perhaps it's particularly relevant to different types of production systems and how long they've been running over time an organic or biodynamic farm may or may not be able to deliver less cadmium mm. in an older animal but Let's come back to that. Um, Grant, in your book, you describe Feather and Bone as a straightforward butchery committed to guaranteed provenance and whole animal consumption, a business built around supply chain transparency that offers a clear line of sight from the farm to the consumer, providing as much guidance as you can to enable more informed choices and to navigate the tricky questions that come with eating animals. Can you, I know you could talk about this for hours, but can you sort of briefly describe who your suppliers are and how you go about selecting them to source the very best possible whole animal? Our suppliers are mainly locally based, so 90 to 95% from New South Wales, although that's a very big state. So, you know, there are parts of Victoria that would be closer than, than say, northwest New South Wales. Where I'm from. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was a personal reference. Having said that, the, the bulk of what we source would be from the eastern half of the state although mostly over the ranges. We don't do a lot of coastal meat, mainly because, and this is why I was sort of interested in the vitamin A thing, I was thinking it's the soil-related. How much of that is soil-related? If you compare the age of soil, say, in New Zealand, which are relatively very young, mainly created, I think, in the last 14,000 million years or something. So much, much, you know, not 14,000 million, sorry, 14,000 years. You know, it's it's a country still creating itself and and you sort of get that sense in New Zealand where Australia clearly is is a very different sort of profile. Into, at first, we I sort of had to look for people. It was very much a, um, a focus on on the breeds of the animals that we were sourcing. And, and I was focused on sheep uh, because 
there was no it, it it was a market that was completely undifferentiated by breed at the, at the well 15 years ago nobody remarked on the on the breed of the lamb that you were eating partially because it's 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 the wool industry sort of you know informs the meat industry tremendously still through the merino sort of um, genetics and if you were looking for things that weren't merino based it was actually quite difficult in new south wales to find anything i was sort of interested in southdown lamb which is pretty rare and new or very rare in new south wales now there's a little still in victoria um i think a lot of the the flock in new zealand still has maybe southdown genetics through it but um not so much here it, it fell out of favor because of its short stature and and relatively high fat content and or fat layer in, in the 70s when fat was the villain and um people didn't really go back to it um in fact a lot of the people that used to grow prime lamb in western victoria gave up lamb production and moved into dairy in fact so tim boone and all those areas <coughs> were famous now famous for dairy or cheese but were famous for um for lamb in uh, 40 years ago so it was an evolution of, con- of concern firstly around genetics and and why things weren't differentiated by breed and um and an attempt to sort of try and show people that or at least posit the question can a can an animal reflect its its place in the same way that say a wine can and is there any value in that is there any value in in maintaining um uh, older breeds of animals as as much as older breeds of wheat say or or vegetables or fruits for that matter and it to me it's quite alarming the reduction in genetic diversity in the foodstuffs that we eat and are, are available to us and they're largely dictated by commercial considerations certainly not considerations regarding human health or or ecological um diverse biodiversity generally and um and also that it's the commercialization of that where the genetics are privately owned and that to me seems you know we we've we've got a common inheritance which is is what humanity has sort of fostered in terms of livestock and also um uh edible species of legumes and, and grains and grasses uh that can't be thrown away so quickly and in a, in a, in an era of of high climate variability i think it's absolutely crucial that we still have um meaningful uh and vibrant genetic diversity sources that we can rely on in in different situations and um especially I, from looking at the figures that that Kate uh, had in her report what's clear is that um the greatest growth of uh, uh animal protein consumption is in chicken and pig and that <laughs> not coincidentally is the intensive that's the intensive model um uh where the genetic diversity is actually at its it's it's narrowest if you look at the pigs that are produced in sheds they uh, that well that one they're privately owned and two you know a lot of the pigs that we buy wouldn't survive in a shed based system they just wouldn't they just wouldn't thrive um you sort of have to produce a different animal to be able to cope with that intensive production system uh and and chicken is a is a perfect example of that that you've got a creature that is barely capable well it isn't capable of naturally um reproducing itself and and it's it's its growth structures have been so manipulated that um or its growth patterns have been so man- manipulated that you know it's a bird that's essentially a bit of a frankenstein as as are the egg laying birds i mean they they're really stupid anyone who's spent a bit of time around 
egg laying, the commercial egg laying chickens, they are remarkably dumb compared with a, a backyard chicken that you might have, a, you know, an old leghorn or something like that. They are much better foragers. They are much more able to, you know, they're faster, they're, they're just smarter. And, um, you know, we don't think that chickens have to be smart, I guess, um, but I think they do. Grab, thank you for that. And it just reminds me of a recent conversation I had with Professor Robin Alders and Matthew Evans um, about on eating meat. And Kate, Kate knows and works with Robin very closely as well. The issue around diversity of species and um, diversity of species of ruminants yeah. and how important they are in the landscape and in a changing landscape. That's so fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. Can I just turning back to um, feather and bone butchery? Can, can I ask you what's the indicative mix of consumers that you currently sell to? Is it a mix of, you know, individuals, households, or restaurants, or who's come? Where's the demand coming from? Uh, the business is probably about twenty five to thirty percent uh, restaurant now, where it was originally one hundred percent when it first the business first started. Um, uh, because we didn't have an, a retail way of accessing retail markets. It's evolved, well, it became 100% during COVID um, retail, obviously, and with restaurants closing. And it's it was probably 30% when COVID started, and it's come back to about 25%. That's sort of okay with us. I mean, it's restaurants aren't really our focus. We're more interested in, in sort of the, in, in the retail customers and being able to sort of offer them a range of different products, but within that retail cohort, it, they're, they're, it's it's quite an atomized selection. So there are people that come to us just for organs. There are people that come to us just for bones. There are people that come to us for eye fillet. And I'm glad there's not many of those because we don't have much to sell them. And so, but we we less and less have to say to people, well, there's none of that available because most butchers, of course, just buy another box. But if you're only buying carcass meat, you know, you're you're very much confronted with the reality of how much, uh, you know, the relative proportion of of what I feel it is of a of a carcass, and it's around one point three, one point four percent of the carcass that we buy. And we would say that's how often you should eat it, but <laughs> I guarantee you that people would eat it more than that. So you were saying, and it relates to the thing you said before: is is what are we accustomed to buying? Well, we're accustomed to buying what the industrial market is in is accustomed to giving us and, and would prefer to give us. And they're not really interested in, in offering a diverse range, interestingly. They, the, less, the less range there is for them, the better it is. Um, the simpler the, pro the processing is and the simpler the marketing is. So we're not quite at the point of America where 80% of beef, for instance, is, is sold as ground beef or what they would call ground beef, minced beef. Uh, because the burger market is so large, we still have more differentiation than that. But increasingly, the butchery is is at the abattoir, and that's that's been a huge change in the last in the last forty years, where the abattoirs are more um, integrated processing facilities that really are shipping out boxed meat, finished finished boxed meat ready for sale, or it just has to be sliced or portioned or something. So most of our butchers are portioners; they're not butchers at all. They rarely get to bone we have great trouble finding butchers who can do what we need them to do in terms of boning whole carcasses that sort of leads into a pretty directly to a question i was going to ask you about whole of animal consumption and i'm thinking of a lovely section in the chapter of your book the whole animal and nothing but the animal and the dying art of whole butchery where you talk about the example mm. of an average beef carcass and what it takes to use it all you talk about the importance of those butchery skills you're just mm. alluding to 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 make it all available and also to offer cuts 
to consumers so they can choose them. Um, but I found the, just the quick breakdown of an animal, of a beef carcass that you provide in that uh, section of the book, I found really fascinating and you've just alluded to it there. 25% of the 25% yields primary cuts that most people know, 25% perhaps equally familiar secondary cuts. and But really the remaining 50% is bones, fat, offal and special muscle but require really special skills to know how to process them, present them. Is that right? Well, yeah, I, I think um, there's a generational gap here. I think depending on your age, uh, my grandmother and even my mother and who was born in the 20s um, would have, you know, offal was just an ordinary part of, of in, in the range of, in the range of uh, dishes that would be cooked in, in any one week, uh, offal would figure. And it was cheap and affordable. Yeah, and, and fresh. I mean, one of the things that we haven't touched on, which is really crucial to this, is, is the shelf life of offal, which really mitigates against selling more of it. So, um, but we can we can get to that later. But um, you know, it's no coincidence that when traditional peasant societies kill a pig, they eat the liver on the day they kill it, and then you know the muscle, some of the muscles will be eaten after preservation a year later. You know, in the case of a prosciutto or something like that. Um, but there are certain things that you will get to straight away while they're at their absolute nutritional, but also flavour peak, which probably corresponds. I imagine they're the same thing, actually, if you've probably looked at it, because those sort of volatile things are the first things to degrade. Your question was, sorry. Just grandmother's wisdom in cooking, grandmother's and grandfather's wisdom in in butchering. So we've dropped a generation who don't understand it, but it's, it's, it's sort of, it's knowledge that's lurking there. So it's not irrecoverable. And, and, and with curiosity, it's certainly, you know, it's there. You know, we find people who've been on vegetarian and vegan diets uh, are a often come to us, especially looking for offal, especially young women who are sort of in reproductive, early reproductive years and have maybe been on quite a strict diet for 10 or 15 years and are finding that they're unable to conceive or, you know, other issues. And they're taking lots of folate supplements and iron supplements. Yeah, well, we would say, and they're a bit horrified because they probably haven't eaten any meat for, for 10 years. And they walk into our place and there's a big window into the into the cool room and it, it's very confronting if, if you've not surrounded yourself with any meat products for a long time, which is the idea, of course. It's, I usually say to them, just, just eat a tiny sliver. I, I know this is sort of a bit gross for you and the idea of eating a large piece of meat is, is, is overwhelming, so don't do it. Just eat a, a really thin slice of really high-quality liver. Um, super fresh. And so that... And I would say, and you can, I know it's a bit over, you know, but you don't have to eat 50 grams. A thin sliver is like eating this amount of, of meat and you'll find that, you know, a quick, it's a much less painful <laughs> way to approach and get the nutrients that you're after. Absolutely. And that's what Kate's research is. Exactly. Digging into all the more. Um, th- thank you for that. That's a, a, a very good, good trip around uh, industrial abattoirs and your sector as well your part of the sector as well Kate I don't want to put you on the spot but would you like to sort of comment very broadly in response to what Grant said about sort of the the larger scale beef industry sector and abattoir sector and perhaps just touch on does beef offal and how we use it or how it's been made available to us is it pretty similar to the sheep meat and offal scenario or or do you see beef offal being made available more to consumers in Australia? 
I probably don't see as much beef often, um, and Grant would know his kidneys don't look all that attractive. Um, they're multi-lobular, so yeah, they're bumpy things, um, and I think as well as Grant's um, hinted the the size of the offal can be a little bit overwhelming as well when you step it up to a to a cattle um, size um, yeah, portion there. So mm. no, I don't think as standalone items. I haven't done it's, it's outside my expertise, Anthea, but just from as a consumer, I haven't seen. I regularly see lamb's fry available at the butcher shop, and as I say, it's always available at, um, at the big supermarkets. Um, but I don't often see beef offal or pig offal for that matter um, available. It's chicken and, and lamb that we're seeing, which are um, the smaller, um, more socially acceptable, I guess, and and visually less confronting. <laughs> Yeah, visually less confronting and they don't, I, I guess, a, a big thing you get, um, and I, I don't know if you get this, Grant, but just when I talk to people about offal is, oh, it looks like a bit of the animal, which um, it is like it reminds, yeah, reminds people that they're eating and they've somehow detached that and it, that fascinates me because people are willing to pick up a chicken carcass at least once a week. If that doesn't look like an animal, I'm not sure what does, but somehow they've detached themselves from muscle. But when they look at offal, they go, wow, that's a working bit of an animal that I'm eating. So I think there's a lot of emotional barriers to offal eating as well as taste and eating experience barriers and lack of food knowledge as Grant said so and certainly as I said liver and lung are filter organs so um, people are aware that you, you know that, that they do that job and yeah the the consequences of having um, fewer and fewer abattoirs and not having that locally available meat we're very lucky here in Orange in that we do have a butcher um, who is nearby who um brings in product and that's why we've got a, a good range which is good yeah so let's talk briefly about supply chain data and other information that researchers and consumers can access to make more informed choices about offal and meat Kate um, you sent through some really interesting information from the red meat industry roadmap for reform that's underway let's not go into great detail there but but just to, in a snapshot do you think that that will help us better picture and understand supply chains and perhaps offer a better picture about offal within large-scale industry so that it is brought to presence and made available a bit more? Yeah, and I, I think thinking holistically, um, which is what the, the red meat reform has suggested, that we think about um, not just end products as standalone, um, which traditionally um, from a market perspective, that makes sense. Um, but I think there's recognition that we need to be looking at, yeah, from, from paddock to plate um, and and incorporating all of that and helping to meet that triple bottom line um, of, of social, economic and environment um, factors there. So I think that there's some really positive thoughts in those papers that, yes, we are looking more towards how can we approach this holistically to help more than just the sale of a product in a market and maximising that economic um, profit margin. So actually seeing more of the whole animal and the full value of the whole animal and also the production systems that, you know, social environmental impacts of those, yeah? Yeah, and look, and, and both the beef and the sheep industries have got sustainability frameworks um, currently um, that incorporate all those and they're aligning with the sustainable development goals. So I think there's a recognition um, that 
to remain economically profitable, we also need to be socially and environmentally um, aware and, and coming out on top as well. And it's not just about the whole greenhouse debate. And Kate, what about the state of industry data about the nutrient composition of Australian red meat? Is that sort of data current enough or fine-grained enough to feed into or influence things like the National Dietary Guidelines? Traditionally, and this is it's globally how dietary guidelines are put together, um, and it's based on what people are eating. And uh, there's no set time frame for review for those nutrient compositions. And I guess if we look at something like the chicken and pig industry, for example, and you know, I don't have expertise as to when they last updated their composition data, but you would certainly expect um, from work that's been done overseas, there's been a big shift from the 1970s when the FAO came out and said people should be eating more white meat. It's got a good nutrient profile, polyunsaturated fatty acids um, that we all need and, and promoting white meat. Um, there's been a massive shift in the um, in the nutrient profile um, due to, to changes in how we produce those animals in that time frame. So I think we need to be aware that um, there can be changes in nutrient composition, um, both long-term and short-term. Um, and have an idea of does that matter um, to the, the health of your societies? Um, is it that big a change that it is going to influence um, yeah, the, the nutrient levels in your, in your people who are consuming those products? And with things like, as, as Grant's alluded to, and people like Matthew Evans and many others, the nutrient profile of chicken has really changed, as has the nutrient profile of salmon, farm salmon. But that's uh, that's another conversation. But so so it's actually really important. I think you've written elsewhere that if if the nutrient composition data isn't available and current, then it can't get into the dietary guidelines. And if it's not in the dietary guidelines, then people aren't encouraged to eat these valuable foods. So it's a bit circular, isn't it? It is. And for example, at the moment in Australia, we don't have any guidelines on how much offal you should eat, um, which particularly for something like liver, which is such a unique food source, um, vitamin A at high levels um, can be what they call teratogenic, which affects um, unborn babies and, and causes problems. So um, there are upper limits of, of how much vitamin A we should eat, um, particularly for pregnant women or people um, aiming to fall pregnant. So, and there's varying advice around the world. New Zealand just says, oh, limit how much liver you eat, whereas the UK says, if you're pregnant, don't eat any liver. I think it's important that we look at environmentally what our country is suited to produce. And given that we've got very little arable land as a proportion of our agricultural land, we're suited for raising ruminants um, on rangeland and then perhaps our dietary guidelines um, and our nutrient composition data should reflect not only what we're eating as a society but what we can sustainably produce off our land. Lots of research ahead um, and, and so important. Grant, consumers will often pay for a quality product and knowing about the nutrition profile of meat and offer products can help people make more informed choices, including for affordable, delicious choices like sausages and mints made with good offal, which, as you've said earlier, is sometimes hidden away. Um, when we spoke recently, you mentioned that there were some exciting developments or tools close on the horizon that you knew of that will make it easier to analyse the nutrition profiles of animals produced within different types of production systems and, and you know, from how they are raising through to how they are slaughtered and the chemicals and anxiety-related things that happen in the body and in the flesh. 
And so it's also important in terms of provenance and enabling producers to be recognised and rewarded for the great things they do for the environment, for animal welfare and for flavour. Can you tell us a little about that work or those tools that are on the horizon? Because it is really important for paddock-to-plate producers and to be recognised and valued for what they're doing. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it's one thing to sort of to you can allude to to sort of how much carbon you might have stored um you might be able to do surveys of of uh species increase in birds or insects or you know other ways of sort of demonstrating uh uh, biodiversity gains on a farm but if you can also point to um a nutritional density uh advantage in the meat that you're producing from that farm i think that really does sort of start to change the discussion it also it also um, allows a differentiation which doesn't really sit at the moment is not part of the discussion. I mean, nobody has any any sort of concern around the price differential that you might find in wine. If you buy a four-litre cask of wine and it costs you, say, $10, $12, uh, and you buy one bottle of wine, which is a sixth of in volume, but is um, maybe twice the price, which is still a relatively, most people wouldn't blink too much about a $15, $20 bottle of wine. But that's, that's a, you know, that's 15 times more expensive than the other wine. Nobody has any issue with that. But, but they do when it comes to meat. They sort of think that there's a, or, or any other agricultural, you know, primary product that there's, that you can't make those sort of distinctions between them. In what is a really sort of cynical move, the, the nutritional, uh, the NIPs, the nutritional information panels that you're obliged to put on it, obliged to put on any manufactured product, they, they don't actually expect that to be the result of analysis that you've done. You just download an app and you, you plug in, in, in amounts and it just spits out a total. It really is one of the most cynical sort of exercises in trying to assuage public, you know, sort of concerns around high levels. It, it, it is useful for high levels of sugar and salt. I think that's probably the, the most sort of valuable part of it. But the, the other ideas about protein and, and I mean, it just says this chicken liver out of this, out of this shed is the same as this chicken, which is twice the age or three times the age from a different breed that's been spending its whole life on grass and foraging. It's not the same product. It's just simply not the same product. But you're, they're more than happy for you to market it that way. Um, in, to go back to your original question, though, as far as I understand it, there is there is quite a lot of work being done, especially in in Britain, um, around uh, the, the nutritional analysis of, of meat from different production systems. And um, of course, you know, there's snapshots, and and I think. Kate alluded to it before that there's you know there's an aggregation the the some of the data the some of the data that that you've published is is the result of an aggregation Kate that that where they bring in you know you wouldn't know what it is it's not specific enough to sort of be able to to pull it apart and understand any specific difference that might sort of relate to say breed or farm that it's produced from which is the other issue about offal because mostly despite the fact that it gets um, it's it's connected to the body when the meat inspector looks at it. After that point, it goes into a great maw of liver, you know, or whatever it might be. It's very hard to keep, depending on the size of the avatar and their process, but it's very hard to keep them separate all the way through the process. And what we're trying to market is the liver from a from a particular animal, from a particular sort of production system. Um, 
and you know especially the liver because of the function it performs you want it filtering you know not places with high cadmium <laughs> levels for instance and yes just yesterday there was a report about the amount of lead in in suburban backyards in sydney and the vegetables that were being grown on that and my area marrickville featured heavily in that because probably from old paint but also um residues from the airports and and everything else um, there can i just interrupt there as a, a gardening advocate <laughs> that's why you need your 60 centimeter raised garden bed because most plants won't won't wick more than 60 centimeters and you can be confident about the clean soil you're putting them in so if you've ever wondered why there are so many raised gardening beds around that that's part of the reason it makes good sense because you know what you dig up in a backyard is quite incredible the amount of sort of it's sort of did, did you the previous people live there just throw all of their bottles in the backyard it's like how much glass can there be there and my chickens just expose it endlessly you know like huge chunks of it just end this sort of, anyway uh where were we that's right the science i think there is the science there that that will that it's starting to starting to develop and it's crucial i think for you know if you're going to advocate for, for different production systems not not just at a at a an aspirational level but at a very sort of concrete well you know an animal eating a diverse range of species on a on a on a farm managed in a certain way is is a very different sort of creature and is able to metabolize that that nutrient in a very different way to an animal that's on a, a set ration say in a in an intensive environment certainly but also even in a relatively impoverished um you know, maybe a coastal coastal farm where they're grass fed, but if it's a paddock that's ninety five percent kaikuya, there's not the nutrient profile there that'll necessarily sustain that animal for its full micronutrient sort of uh, requirements and at different stages of its life as well. It's not just humans that obviously go through these sort of different requirements at, at different parts of their life, and and animals are very sort of adept at at understanding. Uh, you know, given the choice, understanding how to to you know uh, to to self medicate, uh, having agency is crucial. And unfortunately, the production systems that we're that we're encouraged to sort of subscribe to reduce agency um, all the time. And a ration, you know, I sort of alluded to it before with the people coming into our, our butchery. You know, there are some people that come in where a vegan diet is absolutely perfect for their physiology they are super healthy they've had four children they've got no issues whatsoever yet their children might be in some ways compromised it really depends on who you are what stage of life you're in uh, at and and what your requirements or activity level is you know and i would never sort of say everybody should eat all these things it's simply finding what works for you and most people don't listen to their body and i think had the call and response uh, network of the body you shouldn't trust it what you should trust is what a food scientist can can rustle up from a lab where you where it it ticks all your reward boxes in your brain of a little bit of crisp a certain amount of this a certain amount of salt which is i think as kate looked at it in her research around the discretionary foods that we eat and how much that sort of compromises our our, our health and also tricks our body into thinking it's getting what it needs and you know we will tend to overeat if we don't have enough if we can't get a certain micronutrient um and that's what animals do the, you know the average diet for an animal in a feedlot 
is rarely the perfect diet for anyone, any one of those animals because, you know, what what creature are you actually talking about? And often they will not be getting enough, say, selenium and there are traces, you know, so they keep eating to, to sort of compensate for that. So you need to separate out the sources of these things and that's where you get, that's where the diversity of plants in, in fields will provide that option for, for animals to be able to self-medicate and select what they need. That was a very long-winded answer. No, but really important because it but encapsulates the importance of the system in a sense going down down through the system to the ultimate filter, which is the quality of what you eat or the quality of the nutrient profile of the animal and the quality of the animal's life. And in a sense, it's a marker of the quality of the animal products, which is itself a marker or a tracker of the health of the environment as well. So, so thank you. Well, that's exactly right. Rather than what they're selling and just being the thing that's on top of the ground, which is a relatively small part of their, their biota that they're managing. It's a, any farm, no matter how many cattle they have or sheep they have on it, is, it's relatively small. Thank you both so much for helping to picture where things are at in what is really a very complex industry that, and, of that, and one that obviously includes diverse views and different systems and, you know, from large industrial scale production and, and abattoirs and through to smaller scale paddock to plate operators and farmers. And obviously there are participants across that spectrum as well. So it seems across the board, there really is lots of scope to value offal more highly to make the most of every animal raised and slaughtered, to honour them as well as the environments and resources used to produce them. If that production is done well, it can enable animals to enjoy a good life and to contribute to regenerating soils and biodiversity along the way. And I think as you both said in different ways, an animal that's had a good life is likely to be more delicious and more nutritious, it seems. So let's talk now about offal and its nutrient composition. Uh, and why this is so important in terms of human health and through the lens of nutrient waste. That's what Grant Hilliard, Kate Wingett and I will be talking about in the second part of this conversation. So please join us for episode 19 of Nourishing Mothers. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.